You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of Cybersecurity Inside podcast. I'm Tom Garrison here with my co-host, Camille Moorhart. And Camille, since this episode is coming out close to Thanksgiving time, at least here in the U.S., We thought it might be a nice opportunity to listen back to some of the conversations we've had this year on the podcast and highlight the work some of our guests are doing that we're thankful for. I like the idea. I was just thinking about how this podcast really started just a little over a year ago, and I've learned a tremendous amount listening to people and people really from like all different come froms, you know, everything from politicians to analysts to architects to product designers to CISOs, you know, privacy experts, like we've heard it all. So I love the kind of uh, multiple perspectives that we've been able to listen to over the year. You know, you and I have talked about that, actually. We're in this really interesting perspective of listening to folks just like analysts do in the industry. And and so just like analysts go out and talk to customers and then kind of form their opinion around security, we've been able to do the same thing. And like you pointed out, we get some really interesting topics. And in fact, some of the topics, I mean, I probably shouldn't admit this, but sometimes when I hear who we're going to talk to that week, I think, oh boy, you know, I, I wonder how interesting this is going to be. And I have been wildly surprised at some of our topics. Like they just catch me completely off guard. Are you saying sometimes security can be boring, but it's actually not. If you're talking to the right people, it's always interesting. That's right. At first glance, you think, oh my God, this is going to be really, really boring. There's nothing interesting here. And then you start talking about it and you realize, well, that is really cool. I had never thought of it that way. So, and I think that's the beauty of this podcast really was when what we dreamed up when we first started was that. We wanted to take cybersecurity topics and bring them out in hopefully interesting ways. And I, for one, even though I wasn't the intended audience, I feel like a year into it, I'm a whole lot smarter for myself on security, and I hope the listeners are as well. And one of the things that I love is we'll have equally qualified and erudite guests who will actually take really opposing perspectives on the same kind of a topic. So like, for example, we talked with Alex Ionescu, formerly with CrowdStrike, about artificial intelligence. And his take is, well, that's a two-word phrase that if you hear somebody trying to pitch, you know, security management or endpoint management to you, and they use the words artificial intelligence, run screaming. Because for the most part, people are overhyping it. They don't really know what they're doing. They're trying to sell you something that is not really actually been proven out at this point. He does give examples of where it can be and where it does make sense. But that, in stark contrast with a former congressman 
Will Hurd, who talks about how this is one of the most important races in humankind right now. And this is critical for American national security to, quote unquote, win in artificial intelligence. Yeah, I I think that if I could try to square the two off, I think what Alex was saying was anybody who's claiming that AI is here now, they're overstating things. They're they're selling something that's really not ready for prime time yet. And what Will, I think, is trying to say is not that it's here yet, but boy, this is a race and it's a race that we can't afford to lose. So I believe that actually to be true, that it's super important. And, and you know, you and I have been talking about where is AI going, um, which is kind of the billion dollar question. And really, I think there's so many exciting, positive examples where AI can help. But on the negative side, for AI for bad, you know, things that people could use AI in malicious ways the pain there could be extraordinarily high that that people can use ai to be trained to do things that humans would really struggle to be able to do and at scale a scale that humans could never do and so protecting yourself against an ai attacker is a level of skill and capability that we don't have today as an industry and i think it's an interesting way to think about it that it is a race it's a race we can't afford to lose um, and that's certainly Will's view. I would say in this race with China on global leadership, the U.S. can win because we can out-innovate. Um, so yeah, a race is a good thing. But when it comes to certain technologies, like artificial intelligence, coming in second place can't happen. You know, there, there's such a first mover's advantage. This is one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin said, whoever masters AI is going to master the world. So that race, yes, it brings out the best in us. But in some cases, if we don't win, it's going to have impact on an economy. It's going to impact on the dollar. Our savings are not going to be worth as much when we actually retire. We're not going to be able to purchase as many goods and services. You know, it's going to have an impact on our way of life. And then all those things that lead to that. Why does the Chinese government care about 5G? Um, because 5G is going to really empower widespread use of, of artificial intelligence. Why are they trying to double down on, on semiconductor manufacturing? Because the compute power that's necessary in order to achieve AI uh, requires a whole lot of, uh, of semiconductors. Um, so these issues are interrelated in, in this broader race. So what areas of artificial intelligence do you think are going to benefit or have the biggest effect on the American people? You know, I, the, the the real answer is I don't know, right? And that and that's what makes this exciting. Uh, we're already seeing artificial intelligence being used in a, a medical environment to diagnose cancers that the human eye hasn't been able to do. You can look at your iris and determine a certain kind of cancer and you catch it, you know, months, if not years in advance, uh, which prolongs life. We're seeing it being used in agriculture. So uh, you're able to uh, use less land, use less water, but you're, you're increasing your yields, right? You're saving energy. It's pretty fantastic. There's a lot of upsides, right? Um, but then there's also going to be downsides. Like with any kind of technology, we have to make sure the, the ethics and ethical use of these tools 
it starts with making sure AI follows the law. And so the, the, the issue around that is, is something you have to deal with. Facial recognition is always a topic that people have c- concerns with. There's, there's a lot of upside, but, but we need to take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we have the public and the private sector working together on these technologies and recognizing we're in this race because the Chinese government is pushing all of their factors of production in one direction in order to get there before we do. That was former Congressman Will Hurd, a guest on one of our episodes earlier this year. And, you know, Tom, Will talked about the debate in AI, and that point reminded me of a what that means conversation I had on responsible AI. That was kind of the idea that emphasizes the need to think through the choices of what data we feed into AI algorithm, uh, because we may inadvertently be using biased data as a result, get ourselves biased conclusions. That's a very good point. The use of AI is so broad, it, it really touches all of our our lives, or it could touch all of aspects of our life. But that said, AI is only as good as the data used to train it. And so when you think about machine learning, it's important to, first of all, look at the algorithms that are used to make sure that the algorithms are holistic in nature, but also that the data that we're using to sort of feed the algorithm, think of it as like an animal, right? You got to feed it. um, And you want to make sure that you give it a balanced diet of data so that it comes to a balanced conclusion. You know, if you're not careful, the AI will just come back with an answer that is based on the data you gave it, which could be biased in any way, right? It could be biased away from females as an example for you know however you're using it or away from minorities or it could be biased in terms of the numbers that it uses it it really doesn't know what it's doing it just knows the algorithms and and the algorithm will will be heavily predicated based on the data you give it it will optimize but uh, it may not take into account ethical considerations as it does so <laughs> Sure. It, it it doesn't know ethics from an elephant. I mean, it, it, it just does what it's told to do. And that's where humans come into play, right? Humans need to think about this in advance and make sure that they haven't inadvertently created room for bias, right? That's really where the human beings come in. And that's exactly what Chloe Audio talked about on the show She's an Intel alumna, and she's now an advisor and senior manager at the Contellus Group. If we're only thinking about one group of people who will feel the impacts of the technology, I think it really does a disservice to everyone else who may feel an impact along the AI life cycle. So when we ask or think about, you know, who, whom is this responsible to, I think the first question is really, where is the greatest impact going to be felt? And to figure that out, I always start by asking or thinking about, you know, in which context will this technology be used or deployed and who are the communities and users who might be impacted? So I start there. But at the same time, if more people are involved in the design, the development of these systems, thinking about the the context in which they're deployed and who might be impacted, I think more and more pathways or routes of impact can come to light. And um, it's really important, I think, to explore all of those. One question is, 
AI is doing a lot of work kind of organizing and categorizing data for us right now. And its big migration is going to be to really interpreting that data on our behalves and providing us with some kind of view of it that maybe we hadn't thought of before. What do you think we're going to need to think about kind of foremost in the responsibility space? All of the assumptions that we are relying on, the AI making these decisions, um, all of these assumptions are built upon systems and structures in society that are totally not technology related whatsoever. Institutions, power, uh, systems that have sort of racist or white supremacist structures or underlying structure. And making sure that we're thinking about those structures and those systems as we are applying AI or allowing it to categorize, interpret, act, will be so important to not preserve some of that historical, institutional, structural bias that we've seen, you know, do things like perpetuate inequity, create imbalances and opportunity for certain people and communities, you know, throughout the world. So I think to answer your question more succinctly, When we're thinking about responsibility in this space as we move forward, we really need to think about and understand the past and how to make interventions and corrections to some of the the structures and systems that have foundations that we as a society aren't very proud of, right? So I think that's the most important thing. And then I would say the second thing is making sure that as we're enabling AI to make these decisions, is having a way to make sure that all of these diverse perspectives and knowledge streams are included. So, you know, researchers, uh, people who work in civil society, you know, think tanks, policy professionals, business folks, data scientists, ethicists, ethnographers, right, social scientists, like making sure that people who understand these structures and systems um, of the past are there and part of the decision-making, part of the, the teams informing this AI and guiding it as it's making these decisions when we move forward. That was Chloe Audio from a conversation earlier this year about responsible AI. Camille, as we continue on this special look back on the year of cybersecurity inside, I gotta say, I'm thankful that we got a chance to talk with one of our guests, Tim Simpson. Yeah, Tim Simpson, he's the Paul Morrow Professor of Engineering, Design, and Manufacturing at Penn State. I personally have always been intrigued with 3D printing, but for me, 3D printing was basically printing plastics uh, where you could you know, do a bobblehead doll or something like that. And when we met with Tim... He completely changed my perspective of what 3D printing really was all about. And then, almost like a gift, he really opened my eyes to the security challenges associated with 3D printing, something I would have never thought about in this context. And he has so much energy when he talks about it. It's really fun to listen to him. You know, he is specifically doing research in additive manufacturing, but we talked about different kinds of digital manufacturing with him, including 3D printing. We also actually talked briefly about distributed manufacturing. But yeah, he was talking about printing helicopter parts and all kinds of things, right? This real uses, not just bobbleheads. (laughs) Yeah, to build on the spot 
really high-tech devices. And in fact, not just high-tech devices like helicopter parts, but devices that you cannot make any other way. Right. And and when you think about that, you realize very quickly that those recipes and the techniques that you use to build those parts are really important. And you've got to make sure they haven't been tampered with. And then your own livelihood depends on the fact that you keep them safe so other people don't copy them. I think there's a lot there to cover that Tim talks about. So let's just listen to Tim in his own words. Additive is the first of a wave of, of sort of digital manufacturing technologies. And that's everything from the part that we're designing to the tooling that we're using to the process plan, post-processing and inspection. Now everything is digital. It creates all sorts of new challenges. And how do you make sure all of those steps are secure, right? So how would you know if somebody hacked your part file? How would you know if you were transmitting instructions uh, to, a, to another distribution center around the world to make your part? How would you know if those got hacked? Uh, it's challenging. I think it, it's quite an open issue, in fact. And we've seen some studies with consumer desktop 3D printers, studies of taking, you could take a cell phone and just record the motors sort of whirring and whizzing around. And from that, you know, recreate what it printed with about 80 to 90% accuracy. So now talk about espionage and counterfeiting of, of a part. I could just be sitting there holding my phone next to a printer, getting the, the, the beeps and boops and whirs and turn around and do that. Like in our lab, for instance, we actually, our machines are not on the network. You know, you're transferring on a file, but then when the machine's running, you cannot get to it or access it, right? But a, take a machine shop or a job shop. If they're plugging in a 3D printer now to connect to the internet, now you've got a new entry point for cyber attacks and hackers. Are there specific security approaches that we're doing for additive in this industry? Is there something that's more kind of unique or is this fit more into data security in general? I think there are certainly elements of data security in general there, but I think people are now just realizing additive is sort of grown up sort of on its own, you know, island, so to speak, recognizing, hey, we've got all these issues and we're just now at the point of looking around and saying, hey, what do I, what can I learn from the data security experts, from the cybersecurity experts? How do I use blockchain to do this? How do I secure and encrypt my files? How do I do that for my part? How do I do it for my process? And how do I do it for all the data that's coming off of that that I want to use for quality control or eventually qualification and certification if I've got a medical device or, a, or an aerospace component? We tend to think about from an engineering standpoint, you know, it's materials and process, but all of that now, the, the data security issues, the ability to sort of get in there and and hack any of that and modify any of that is just sort of, <laughs> you stop and stop and step back and think about that. And you're like, holy cow, there's so many places this could go wrong now, right? And, and how do I secure all of this? I love that. But holy cow is right. Again, that was Tim Simpson. And 3D is an area we'll keep an eye on because as Additive manufacturing continues to find more and more uses. Securing those designs, the process, and everything else involved is going to become even more important. Definitely. You know, our conversation with Tim also bridges over into a lot of the cybersecurity work we do in general. And that's really about how we engage with 
researchers at universities. We've talked in several different episodes around bug bounties, which is how we engage with researchers to incentivize them to do research on our platforms and like a crowdsourced security. In these cases, people often in academia, they let us know when they find these vulnerabilities in products. And then they work with us to make these improvements in the products. And then we together go out to the industry, talk about those vulnerabilities and make sure that we educate people on updating their systems. Yeah. And I I really did enjoy the conversation that we had with Jason Fong. He's Director of Offensive Security Research at Intel, as well as Academic Research Engagement. So basically, we're looking at offensive security being the hackers and research being what they're looking at and what they're going and figuring out. And Jason's done, like you said, engaged with academics in all kinds of innovative ways. I mean, you talked about the Bug Bounty Program But, you know, we also do capture the flag. So really interesting stuff that really was put together when we as industry sit down with academia or run into each other and realize we're not talking enough (laughs) for either, either academics or industry to really understand the future trends and where things are moving and the kind of technology that we're going to need to have and how to look at vulnerabilities, we have to be working together closely and exploring research and topics together closely. That's true. I mean, when you think about uh, security research in general, actually any research, not just security research, you are by definition on the cutting edge of knowledge. And that can be a pretty lonely place. If you're not careful, you can also kind of spin off into areas that may not be as fruitful. And so having a tight coordination with researchers to gather the the best of their ideas, coupled with where we see from a business standpoint where things are going, um, that's really the magic when when the two sides talk closely and and we can engage together. Yeah, it's really interesting. And the, the motivations are, you know, different often for people in industry and people in academia. So that also plays into it. You know, you've got to create relationships that are mutually beneficial, and they may be sometimes at first glance diametrically opposed in objective. So, you know, Jason talks about that too. How do you sit down together when at first glance you you may actually be coming at something from opposing viewpoints? So I remember at one time that we actually submitted a paper for a really great uh, conference and we thought oh yeah we are solving a big problem and they should like our paper at the end when we receive reviewers feedback they basically ask what makes you feel that this issue that you're solving is the top issue to them they haven't heard about the issue because we fail as an industry to tell them about what are the biggest problem sometimes i think in academia and actually also in industry we end up in silos Mm-hmm. And then you miss, you have big gaps. Whereas if you end up working together, you know, it might just take a lunch together to figure out, oh my gosh, you know, I hadn't thought of that angle. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing that we also do is we try to create these opportunities in a more intentional manner. 
Let me ask you one thing. I think you started a capture the flag in hardware. Can you explain what that is? So at that time, we thought about, hey, how can we make this uh, journey, the awareness building journey, to be even more fun and more hands-on? So we partnered with uh, researcher partners in academics uh, from Germany and from also U.S., and we pulled together this uh, hardware capture the flag competition. Uh, we showcase all the common weaknesses we are aware of in an open source SOC, but we embedded these uh, vulnerabilities into that big pool of uh, LTL code. And then we open it up for uh, the competitors to find them. And we give them 48 hours straight, nonstop actions in a conference setting and invite teams of uh, maybe three or four joining together and find as many issues as possible. One thing that they walk away with is that first, oh, this is what you mean by having these issues because they get to see them. They got to play around with them. Second is that they also understand the challenges being encountered by our verification team because with a very short period of time that you have to verify your LTL before it got released as a product, we create that uh, 48-hour window that there are so many bugs inside the LTL that you need to find. The more, the better. They understand now I really need tooling. I really need a fantastic methodology to help me understand the LTL, find all the issues and be able to report back. So that also bring that awareness to the attendees so that hopefully right, they will be inspired to work on the research discipline related to hardware security in a more intentional manner relevant to the hardware industry's problems. I'm so glad that you're working on this and focused on it. And I think it's really interesting that such deep partnerships occur actually between industry and academia and what we, you know, kind of traditionally think of as hackers, but putting a different spin on it, thinking of the good side of that and how it's helping evolve technology. Camille spoke with Jason Fung, Director of Offensive Security Research and Academic Research Engagement at Intel. If you want to listen to the conversations we featured today in their entirety, we'll have links in the show notes so you can find them easily. Camille and I are always looking out for great topics for the podcast. So if you have some topics that you would love to see us dive deeper into, I encourage you to reach out to us on LinkedIn. Yeah, and I'll add to that too. If there's definitions that you want to know more about and you want them from top technical experts, uh, also reach out on LinkedIn. We've got a lineup already for what that means in 2022 of metaverse, transhuman, cybernetics, robotics, digital identity. So anything else like that that you want definitions for, let us know and we'll try to get them in the queue. And stay tuned because at the end of December, we'll have another look back over the year at Cybersecurity Inside. In that episode, we'll be focusing on strategies we learned from some of our guests and how to prevent cyber attacks on your devices, computers, and networks. So that should be fun. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening.
The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.